Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. And now in the wings, Annie Ryan, Artistic Director of the Corn Exchange Theatre Company, writer Michael West and actor and writer Patrick Dawson talk about working on various productions, both for sound and stage, of the 15 stories that make up James Joyce's Dubliners. My name is Annie Ryan. I'm the founder and artistic director of the Corn Exchange Theatre Company. My name is Michael West. I'm a playwright, a translator and an adapter. My name is Patrick Dawson. I have been an actor and I have been a writer or constructor of scripts of popular serial drama largely, plus various other items. Boarding House is a marvellous story. It, it plays with multiple points of view and that is already theatrical. So we're looking at Mrs Mooney um, and her version of, of events and we see also her daughter's version of events and we see Bob Doran's. And between the three of them we get, a, we get a, a synoptic view, as it were, of what really happened. And then, of course, there's the extra added dimension of the fact that her boarding house itself is a little theatrical um, example of itself, if you like, because the, the, the other tenants and boarders are they're travelling salesmen but also circus uh, and music hall entertainers so it has a little little show within a show that was appealing to us. So the boarding house is much more of a big kind of ensemble story. It features Mrs Mooney who is a butcher's daughter. There could be theses done on this in American universities. James Joyce and butchers. <laughs> now this was a role played by the great Dervla Crotty. And she had been married to Mr. Mooney, or she was married to Mr. Mooney, but he uh, turned out to be a drunk. So she's running the boarding house pretty much by herself. And she's two kids, Jack Mooney, who is described as a hard case, and Polly Mooney, who's 19. Now, little Polly is, you know, coming of age. And she comes in, she sweeps in and sings a song, which is the lyrics are... I'm a naughty girl, you needed sham, you know I am. And she describes herself in our production as Polly was a slim girl of 19. She had light, soft hair and a small, full mouth. Her eyes, which were grey, with a shade of green through them, had a habit of glancing upwards when she spoke with anyone. And then we cut to Mrs Mooney, who says, which made her look like a little perverse Madonna. Uh, in the story called A Boarding House, I'll read you the first line. Mrs Mooney was a butcher's daughter. She was a woman who was quite able to keep things to herself, a determined woman. She had married her father's foreman and opened a butcher's shop near Spring Gardens. Anyway, the story goes on that the former foreman goes on the drink and causes a lot of trouble and the potential riches of the butchery are frittered away and she has to open the boarding house and that's how the story goes. I have a secret suspicion that James Joyce was a little jealous of butchers because they were able to make loads of money with what they did, whereas he lived in a very precarious profession. A lot of the stories in Dubliners are about characters finding themselves trapped in roles they cannot play. Um, they're cast in the wrong role or they don't have the qualities to pull off the role that they're in or they're self-consciously trying on certain identities. So in the case of a boarding house, Mrs Mooney is playing the outraged mother very self-consciously 
adjusting her face and mannerisms to play that role. And similarly, his, her daughter is playing the, the ingenue and the leading lady, and then she's playing the, um, the fallen woman or the wounded virtuous girl. Um, and then Bob Doran is, you know, again, a certain fantasies of himself as a, as a man about town, and he's hitting into the blunt reality that he's been just played and tricked into into a, a forced marriage. Um, so, again, that's that's inherently theatrical. We, we see characters trying on roles and uh, and struggling like crazy against the, the text and gestures that they're required to perform. There are some instances through the book of attitudes to women. For instance, the character Corley and Two Galants is greatly admired by the other character in the story. Now, this is reflected again in another story where one man admires the apparently successful other man. But the other man turns out to be not quite as good as we think he is. And not quite as successful either. But Corley portrays himself as a, a woman's man and he can get any woman and he gets them all to do what he wants them to do, etc., etc. So this is a, quite a common attitude. I wouldn't say it's misogynistic, but it certainly isn't respectful. One of them's telling a joke and the bigger fella called Corley is kind of explaining his plan. And, and the thing about this world, this uh, world of Dublin 100 odd years ago, is that nobody had a bean. There was just no money, no prospects, no jobs. There was just nothing. And so these are all stories really set in the middle classes. We're not really going into the really dark heart of Dublin in these stories where we're not going into Monto, we're not going into the tenements. And in a way, I understand why, like it was so depraved and so like you, I don't know how you would carve a really great story out of it when it's just, you know, complete misery. Mind you, I suppose O'Casey managed it, didn't he? When he came to actually writing Dubliners, what he talked about were um, epicleti. I think it's the, the Greek term, possibly from the Greek Orthodox Church, but it's the invocation to transform the base bread uh, into the holy body of Christ. So the the actual transformation of the quotidian and ordinary into something spiritual and divine and that accurate observation of the ordinary is itself the conferral of the divine grace that elevates into something beautiful when we did the piece for the Lear, and we rediscovered a little cloud which is a brilliant story about little chandler who works at king's inns and he is gearing up to finish the day to skip down into town and meet his old friend, Ignatius Gallagher, who's back in Dublin after a long stint in London, where he has a career as a journalist. He himself thinks of himself as a, as a poet. And although it never says that he writes anything. So this is a guy who wants to be a poet, but doesn't even bother taking the books out of their shelves to read poetry, let alone write anything. In A Little Cloud, the character known as Little Chandler is waiting for Ignatius Gallagher. Ignatius Gallagher apparently has been a big success in the newspapers in London. And uh, Little Chandler has kept a quiet life. He's married and he has a son and it's a quiet life. But he has these dreams that he could write poetry. He could do the same thing as Gallagher and he could have a lot of money, etc., etc. So he's delighted at the prospect of meeting Gallagher. But through the evening, you begin to see that Gallagher was kind of boastful and gives the impression he can handle this and do that, etc., etc. Chandler begins to have second thoughts having left him and having had a little bit too much to drink through the period that they're together. 
And I found this interesting where there's one man admiring another greatly, thinking he wished he could be like that, but they don't really want to be in the end. So it's a story about someone with a fantasy of themselves as a writer, as an artistic and creative person. Uh, who has dreams of, of seeing their delicate poems appearing in print, um, confronting a successful person who, who ran away and escaped in, in the terms of the story is considered a, a big success and they meet up and, of course, it doesn't quite have that effect. So it has resonances with the, the sort of the romantic theme um, and the idea of the tension between the creative life and the domestic life. So he meets him in the pub and um, he is besotted with everything Gallagher says. And basically, Chandler doesn't really get a word in. So with every anecdote and little colour that Gallagher is giving him, Chandler is feeling more and more disillusioned, smaller and smaller and smaller. It's quite a delicate story. It has real virtues and it has an interesting resonance with Joyce's own experience of running away with, with Nora and, you know, she became pregnant and they had two children and he was very much the self-styled uh, exile. Um, so it's a, it's a strange story about... Uh, Joyce can see himself into both roles, acting the the rather pompous returned writer and also um, the thwarted, delicate, frustrated spirit who is trapped in a situation where he's no, nothing to offer his wife and he can't even keep his baby quiet. The printed page can be a great barrier to many of us. Now, I know that Joyce was a singer, a person who listened who used his ears and he had eye trouble. So I often think he was almost writing for it to be heard. Evelyn is a story that I felt connected to personally from a long time ago. And maybe it's because I went away. So it's the story of a girl who's deciding to leave home. And of course, I did leave home to come to Ireland uh, from my native Chicago when I was quite young. So this moment of will I, won't I, you know, when you have these choices and to be inside of a girl's mind and to really, um, the way she articulates her possible future in this very miserable town is really powerful and has uh, very powerful contemporary resonances. So then we come to Evelyn, which is um, a bright and shining masterpiece that has the incredible virtue of succinctness. Uh, it's in possibly the shortest story in the collection. It's only about, I think, 1,300 words, barely four pages, uh, and it would come in at about around 10 minutes if you, if you read every word of it. So those are all shining virtues when you're coming to theatrical adaptation in the first place. The almost unsung hero of these stories in terms of acting is a gentleman called Connor Farrington. And Connor was the ultimate narrator the narrator should be a person who is a sort of disembodied voice, but also involved in the story, but he's not one of the characters from the story. And Connor was excellent at doing this. He didn't impose himself on the story as a person. It was like no acting required almost kind of thing, but there was acting required and it required a finesse which Connor had. It's part of its magic charm, I think, derives from the fact that it's maybe only the second story he wrote. But Joyce's life changed, you know, irrevocably on, on June 16th, 1904, because he met Nora, Nora Barnacle. Um, and that's the date that's immortalised in Ulysses itself. And Joyce is very suspicious about dates and stuff like that. But not only did he meet the love of his life, he'd also been offered money for the first story that he'd written, which was The Two Sisters. And A.E. had given him a pound, I think, to write a short story that he could publish that wasn't too far over the heads of his... Uh, Irish homestead readers. Uh, so Joyce suddenly saw this world of um, both love 
and possibility uh, and artistic reward coming together in, in the heady weeks of June 1904. And, you know, the two events were absolutely associated, you know, that sense of creative unlocking and potential um, drove him through it. And the story, Evelyn, is about a young woman trapped in a, in a no-hope existence who runs, you know, is offered the chance to run away with her love but chooses not to. And what's interesting about the story is that within four months of meeting Nora, they had eloped together and run off on the boat. And in a sense, that story is the anxiety of dream of what if Nora doesn't come with me? And there must have been... Because, again, he's he was a man with nothing to offer her other than his love and his gift of the gab. But it's it was a pretty intense and brief courtship and she was running away to nothing. So there's... There's all that sort of stuff for a very young um, couple. You know, he was living part of that very story that he was mining his own life for for, um, for detail and for emotional content. And I think that's why it, it, that's why it reads so true. I think as well that uh, that he's absolutely quivering himself with the same sense of uh, paralysis and opportunity. When we did Dubliners for Dublin Theatre Festival in 2012 at the Gaiety. The story, Counterparts, was first up after the interval. But when I did it with the Lear, a couple of years later, in 2016, we started after the interval with A Little Cloud. Both stories start in an office. Farrington is at work with Crosby and Elaine solicitors. So A Little Cloud talks obviously directly to, to Counterparts. Counterparts is that same drama about a uh, you know a character trapped uh, as many of the stories in Dubliners are um Farrington doesn't have great ambitions for uh, a creative life his creative potential is expressed entirely through alcohol alcohol it's interesting about alcohol for instance in counterparts the leading character is a man who works in an office very boring job he doesn't like his job he doesn't like the chief clerk all he wants to do is get to the comfort of the pub and the snug or wherever and have a few drinks and have a bit of banter with his mates. And he has a difficult day, so he slips out to the pub, leaving his hat, which indicates that he's present in the office, slipping out, but he has another hat in his pocket, a simple little hat, and he goes to the pub for a quick drink. Basically, things go from bad to worse. The day becomes a disaster because he keeps can't stay out of the pub. He even pawns his watch. But when he goes home, that's where the crisis occurs. He calls his son down in a Rofayet. But basically, he ends up in a very violent action within the family. The story Counterparts is a good sort of marriage with a little cloud from another perspective. There you have a little character, and here you have a big character. And they both end with these moments of fatherhood. So this is also a guy who is, you know, really exhausted by the work, has absolutely no passion for the work, and all he can think of is the drink. He's probably drunk already at the, at the beginning when we meet him. He's, so he's got this task he has to do. His job is really to copy down legal uh, documents. Uh, so he's a human photocopier. Uh, it's it's a, the very definition of, uh, of a sterile life. All he can think of is nipping out for a quick one. It's a picture of procrastination. And all of us during COVID, no doubt, really know this one. So he slips out for a drink and you have the feeling that this isn't, you know, he's already had a liquid lunch. So, um, you know, this is a man deeply addicted and he says darkness accompanied by a thick fog was gaining upon the dusk of February and the lamps in Eustace Street had been lit. And you get the feeling that he is 
not just dark, but also accompanied by a thick fog in his brain. In Ulysses, on the other hand, but related to this as well, I, I think if one thinks about it, there's a negative and a positive in relation to alcohol in that Stephen Dedalus uh, just drinks too much and is in a sense what you'd call nowadays a, a binge drinker. Whereas Bloom is a careful drinker who enjoys his glass with his lunch and he even goes to the extent of uh, pouring a drink away secretly when was asked to drink in, in, in company and avoids drinking in the pub in uh, Barney Kiernan's bar. Bloom has offered a free drink, which is probably a nice thing in those days, but instead he takes a cigar. So he avoids excessive alcohol. He stays in control pretty well. So the story hinges on the idea of um, not only trying to navigate and escape from his job without um, losing it, but also trying to get some money. So he, he pawns a watch. Uh, and with that small stack of coins, he goes off on a proper, you know, Dublin pub crawl and meets his mates and tells stories, self-aggrandizing stories about himself. And he ends up getting drunker and drunker and has a failed kind of attempt to flirt with an English musical singer and ends up fighting and being humiliated in, a, in an arm wrestle. So it had, it had great theatrical vitality. We, we get to show the pub scenes. We see a man raging in a deluded form of, of liberation. But then, of course, it all collapses and he has to go home. So it's a much more violent version of, of some of the other stories where we see the man about town who has a, a false idea of himself suddenly reduced to this um, drunk violent, frustrated man who is who complains he isn't even drunk, but when he gets home, um, he finds his wife is at church and one of his small children has let the fire go out, so he resolves to beat the child to teach them a lesson that life has taught him in a different way. So it's a very, very dark story, but a very satisfying, dramatic version of that dark story. When we were trying to stage this, we tried to give the atmosphere of this kind of frenzied office world so we had a little posse of ensemble featuring the beautiful Gus McDonough, Mark O'Halloran, Ruth McGill. And they took care of quite a lot of that kind of narration as if they were kind of gossiping behind Farrington's back. And the repertory company was made up evenly of men and women. Now, there were some wonderful actors or actresses, as we used to say then. I think particularly of Peg Monaghan, Barbara McCaughey, Daphne Carroll, and talking about Daphne Carroll, her daughter, Catherine Brennan. Colette Proctor, Kate Minogue, character actors like uh, Peter Dix, Brendan Caldwell. Then there were actors of a younger generation like uh, Joe Taylor, uh, Michael Grinnell. Yeah, after, after the race was one of the easier ones to cut. I, th I mean, I think generally most people would concede that in, in a collection of astonishingly high standard, that it's one of the weaker stories. You know, in terms of it, its candidacy for theatrical adaptation, it, it didn't offer... Uh, an immediate way to, to deliver something satisfying. It didn't track the emotional journey of, of the romantic love affairs of most of the other stories. So that's one aspect. And then the other one, I think, is that um, the, the method, the artistic method that Joyce stumbled across in the stories themselves was, was the, um, the grafting of Christian mythology uh, and using it as a structural um, and emotional principle to animate the stories. And uh, we, we're kind of so used to that now that it's sometimes hard to see how revolutionary and interesting that was as a technique. So it started with, with the sisters that he's taking the story of Lazarus and playing off it ironically with a big gong of um, sort of, yes, irony and um, 
the idea that in this case, of course, the priest isn't going to come back. After the race was one of the stories that didn't make the cut. Why? Probably gender balance. This is a, it's a story um, very much about a lot of boys. And it, it touches on the social status of the characters. And it's a bunch of guys talking about cars and, and money and outdoing each other. So there's a there's a lot of kind of male competition in it. Anyway, we, we decided not to do it. <laughs> so, so we went from Evelyn into to Galance. In the story after the race, for instance, there's a young man who is very well got. His father has lots of money and has educated him. And he, he, he falls in with a group of apparently very well-off, sophisticated guys. And he's very happy that he's here because it's a step above from what his father had been. But ultimately, it, there is drink involved in this and card games and a lot of stuff going on. Essentially, we understand that he's been taken for a fool, money-wise, essentially. And again, alcohol is heavily involved in this. So I don't think Joyce was uh, too much uh, keen on, on alcohol as such. <laughs> Joyce himself said in a letter to um, to Stanislaus famously that basically, don't you like my stories? Um, because don't you find in them a certain resemblance between the mystery of the mass and what I'm trying to do? Which is the characteristic lack of modesty that Joyce showed in his own work. But I think it it articulates very clearly something that he had found, which was that his extraordinary gifts were able to transform the, the base bread of everyday life, if you like, into the, the holy and Christine body of art. That by, by shining the light of his talent and his stylistic um, mastery on these quotidian and ordinary lives, he could make something shine brightly. So uh, that was very much the method that inspired him and, and got him going through them. And I think that because After the Race is, is one of the early stories, the method is applied a little bit too obviously. That's maybe it. It's, it's basically a reworking of, of The Prodigal Son and it doesn't have the other angle of, of what else is going on. It's sort of mapping a bit too closely to, to the original story. So there isn't that, there isn't a point of traction there where you're able to go, well, who are we rooting for here? What's the, what's the tension? So there, that's, that's why that fell by the wayside to use the um, another parable. In a Grace, uh, the poor man has a drink problem. He has converted from Protestantism to Catholicism. But one feels that he isn't entirely comfortable with this. And the poor man is in bed and the wife gets together a group of uh, businessy colleagues to gently nudge him, we'd say nowadays, towards going on a retreat, which they are all going on. And this man has no desire to go on the retreat. <laughs> And uh, and something about candles is mentioned. And Bendon Caldwell, playing this character beautifully, says, candles, that's a step too far. No candles. So, so he will go so far with having embraced Catholicism reluctantly, but there's a step he will not go past. But he ends up going on the retreat and the ending is is a little ambiguous. Let's put it that way. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, Grace is one of the easier stories to, to let fall down the stairs um, like the main character uh, at the beginning of, of the story in that it was in the way that uh, Ivy Day in the committee room reaches out sideways to politics, this is reaching out to a sort of a mercantile idea of retreats and Joyce's own interest in that story um, was something else to, to what we were following, which as I say, was these romantic relationships and um, it didn't fit into that. There's a peculiarity to the tone that... Um, that didn't fit with where we were going, which was we were, as I say, the final furlong um, 
is is the dead we can sort of see the snow falling the snow clouds are are bringing uh their magic uh, to bear on the situation and that and that sideways it felt like a, a sideways detour too far at that stage so i do think that there is something universal about these stories about the grotesque pettiness about our own deep self-loathing about the whole shadow side of ourselves how we refuse to move forward how we are paralyzed by fear about what the neighbors think I think all of the ways that Joyce was uh, criticizing and embracing the fullness of his hometown I think we see all of those colors alive in Dublin today but I also think that we probably see them in any town and in any city in the world And on tonight's In the Wings, you heard the voices of Annie Ryan, Artistic Director of Corn Exchange Theatre Company, writer Michael West, and also actor and writer Patrick Dawson, all of whom are talking about working on various productions, both for sound and stage, of the stories from James Joyce's Dubliners. The producer of In the Wings is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.